So yeah, welcome back. Ever since I heard that we are going to be meeting again, I've had uh, the Welcome Back Cotter theme song playing in my head. If For anyone born before the 80s, you probably remember that song with, the, or that show with John Travolta and the Sweat Hogs. So anyway, uh, it's been great having you. And one of the things I want to say is thank you to Donovan and all of you who have played into helping us take a huge step forward in our online presence with live streaming. Um, one of the things that's come out of COVID has been just uh, the way different organizations have adjusted to make things more accessible to people. And I think making the gospel more accessible to people is one thing we need to always be striving toward. Um, over the last year, uh, with my schooling, I've been able to attend a number of conferences that uh, prior to COVID, I wasn't able to be a part of. I had to uh, fly there. Like, I went to a conference in Helsinki, but through Zoom. So uh, we're just able to be present in different ways, in different places. Uh, this past week, I was able to virtually attend the funeral or as he wanted it called, the celebration of life uh, for my first ever youth pastor, Tim. Tim Donovan, uh, I first met him when I was in elementary school. By profession, he was a photographer and he would go around to the different places or different schools in southern New Brunswick taking pictures, capturing the smiles of students as he had them repeat back to him the words, stinky feet or fuzzy pickle and we just couldn't contain our laughter and he'd capture that smile uh, as we laughed. Over the years I've had different people in my life uh, who have discipled me and mentored me and very rarely has it ever come in the form of someone coming up to me and actually I've never had this happen someone coming up to me and saying I want to mentor you, I want to disciple you Lots of times, mentoring or discipling happens by accident. For me, it was a matter of being around people who were intentionally living their lives for Jesus. Some were pastors, some were coaches, some were professors and teachers, co-workers, and in the case of Tim, photographers. I was fortunate to be a part of their lives. Uh, by some subconscious osmosis, I picked up principles, practices, and beliefs just by being around them, hearing what they said and learning from what they did. I was, it wasn't just what they said when they were on at church or in the classroom. It was that no matter where they were, they attempted to live their lives in a way that uh, reflected what they claimed to believe. It wasn't that they were perfect or never got it wrong. Um, it's what they did even when they did mess up. How they attempted to live every aspect of their life in a way that bore witness to the one they claimed to serve. I, I'd like all of us to take a moment and think about someone or maybe two people that have influenced you for Jesus over the years. And so I'll just give you a moment. If you have that person, whether they knew it or not, 
And whether you knew it or not, they were discipling you. They were pointing you toward Jesus. Uh, what I mean by discipling is that is when someone intentionally lives their life in a way that points others to Jesus. Tim treated me like I was his best friend. Every time he's, uh, he said something or any time he did anything, it was with care. It communicated care to me. At Tim's <coughs> excuse me, celebration of life, people recounted story after story of the love and joy that Tim exuded from his life or in his life. As I listened, I began to think of my own experiences or my own encounters with that love and that joy. Long after I left youth, I would occasionally see Tim, and the response was always the same. There'd be a smile beaming across his face, and he'd come up to me, wrap his arm around me, and give me a side hug that would leave me gasping for air. Tim got it right. He knew that loving Jesus meant living a contagious life of discipleship that, in, that invited people into a love story bigger than themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. In our Summer of Love series, we're looking, uh, looking at legendary love stories or relationships. And this week, as we continue that series, we're going to look at the discipleship relationship between Eli and Samuel. To be, to position this story for us, I will, um, sorry, 1 Samuel retells the story of Israel's transition from being led by judges to being led by kings. So 1 Samuel actually overlaps with the book of Judges. And it's in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel that we get the story of Eli and Samuel. This is during a time when Samson was judge. When we read through the book of Judges, we very quickly discover that this wasn't the most virtuous time in Israel's history. There's lots of stuff going on that shouldn't be. So it's a little surprising that when we open up 1 Samuel, we, in chapter 1, it's the story of a family devoted to God. A man named Elkanah every year would take his family to a place called Shiloh uh, to worship God. One of those, on one of those visits, Elkanah's wife, Hannah, got up from a meal and went into the tabernacle to pray. While she was in there, she broke down, and we read in 1 Samuel 1.10 that she's in deep anguish and that she cries out bitterly. Hannah desperately wants to have children, but she hasn't been able to have any. Uh, so in the tabernacle, she prays to God and begs and bargains with him. She promises that if God gives her a son, she will give that son back to God to serve God in the temple for all his life. Now at this point, we could talk about bargaining with God, but after the jets sweeping the oilers in last May, I feel like you all know way too much about bargaining with God. Uh, it's, it's during Hannah's prayer that Eli steps into the story. In verse 9, we learn that Eli, the priest, is sitting in his customary place while Hannah enters the tabernacle. Now check out what happens in verses 12 to 14. <clears throat> As she was praying to the Lord, Eli, Eli, 
I need a drink. Excuse me. Eli watched her, seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound. She thought she had been drinking. It must have, must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Our first introduction to Eli is him getting it wrong. He totally misreads the situation. Could you imagine being Eli in that moment? This woman is pouring her heart out to God, and you accuse her of being drunk? A little awkward. As we continue to read 1 Samuel, we learn about more of his mistakes. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read that Eli's son, as it says in verse 12, scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. Other translations refer to them as wicked men. The chapter goes on to describe some of their wicked ways, which included taking meat from the sacrifices before it was time and sleeping with women who served in the tabernacle. Initially, Eli may have been oblivious that this was going on. Uh, Maybe he was too busy with his own responsibilities as a priest. Uh, Maybe his sons were just that good at hiding things. But word gets out and it eventually makes it back to, uh, to Eli in verse 22. In, in verse 23 to 25, he con- Eli confronts his sons, but they totally dismiss him. And he does nothing more about it. I don't bring this up uh, to say, look at what a bad parent Eli was. Uh, I'm guessing there's already enough parent shaming in our culture And the reality is, we can't be responsible for the choices that others make. Um, We can only hold ourselves responsible for how we lead and how we respond. And the same goes for Eli. After Eli's failed attempt to correct his sons, he does nothing more about it. And that's when a man of God comes to Eli, it says, and he brings a message. This man of God tells us, and reminds Eli of how God has been faithful to Israel and how God chose Eli's family for a special task of serving in the temple. On behalf of God, this man of God asks, why then do all you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? But this isn't a charge that's brought just against Eli. The man of God says, all of you, This seems to be a general question for all the priests, or at least Eli and his sons. The charge specifically brought against Eli in verse 29 is that he has honored his sons more than God. This takes me back to Exodus 20, when God reminds Israel of how he brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. Uh, and, and And then in Exodus 23, he gives the first of the Ten Commandments, which is, do not have other gods beside me. Eli has set up his sons as gods over the one true God. As a consequence, God is going to snuff out his family line as priests and replace them with a priest who will do whatever is in God's heart and mind. At this point, Eli is old, and essentially he's being told, you blew it. 
that's not a message any of us want to have. That's, none of us want to get to the end of our life and hear, you blew it. We're told uh, in the first two chapters, basically all the times that Eli has blown it. He is portrayed as a failure, unworthy of his priestly offer, uh, office. In praying, preparing for this message, there are a bunch of discipling relationships I could have chosen. I could have talked about Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas, Paul and Titus, Jesus and, well, the disciples. But I chose Eli and Samuel because this Eli guy is someone I can identify with. Here's a guy who's supposed to have it all together, have it all figured out. He's priest in charge of other priests, and he still messes up. He tries his best, and he keeps getting it wrong. Is there anyone else here that can relate to this like me? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but maybe we've grown up in the church. We know all the right things to say, know all the right things to do. We're able to put on that good front, but behind the scenes, we know uh, it's a show, that we're, we're messing up. I'm going to guess this is one of the things that stops people from stepping into that role of discipling others. The thing that scares us about living out our lives intentionally, uh, that we point people to Jesus it's that fear that we don't have our own lives together, so how can we help others? Maybe hearing about Eli, uh, we begin to form a list in our mind. We start thinking about our past and, our, and even our present. We make this mental list of things that disqualify us from being disciples. So I want to share with you an illustration that I'm borrowing from Andy Stanley, the lead pastor at North Point Community Church in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. In a sermon on mentoring, Andy talks about how each of us is a unique treasure chest made up of wisdom, insight, knowledge, and experience. All of our wisdom and insight and experiences fill our chest, the chests of our lives. And it's not just the stories of the times we've got it right. It's not just all our successes that, that fill that chest. It's also full of our failures. It's, uh, sorry. Sometimes the bigger treasures in our chests are what we've learned from our failures, are the times that we got it wrong, the times that we blew it. It's not just the successful stories. It's the time we found something on our team's phone that we know shouldn't be there and we didn't respond the way Jesus would. It's the time that something went wrong at work and we blew up. It's the time that we're, times that we're in the office and there's a conversation happening that we no, we shouldn't be part of, but instead of excusing ourselves or uh, speaking up, we join in. 
the reality is that sometimes we can learn more from our failures than our successes, and so can others. So let's take that mental list of all the things that we think disqualify us and work through it asking, what can I learn from this? How can this be used to point others to Jesus, to teach others about what it means to follow Jesus? When the teens here at Westside get into 12th grade, I'll often ask some of them if they would like to be a junior youth leader uh, with our grade 7 and 8 youth. I share the nuts and bolts of what happens on uh, behind the scenes on a regular youth night and um, what the expectations would be and how we work together on a team that they're not on their own in this. And I talk, also talk with them about following Jesus, how that's not, that's also discipling others, that following Jesus is about discipling, being discipled and discipling others. When I ask them to join in, it's not because I don't think they'll ever mess up. One of the reasons I ask them is because of the impact it has on the seventh and eighth graders. Uh, when they see high school seniors who are trying to live their lives for Jesus, when they see them at the bus stop or, uh, or outside the school and, they, and they're like, hey, I know that guy, I know that girl. She's following Jesus too. The, their willingness to say yes to discipling others is another voice that God can use to lead them to him. What God is looking for most is people who are willing failures and all, to be used by him. Eli's life spans three chapters and a bit of 1 Samuel. And in this snippet of Eli's life, we only read about him getting it right once. At the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, three we read a story that maybe, maybe you heard growing up. It's the Samuel hearing from God. To set the stage, uh, what's we're told at the beginning in 1 Samuel 3, 1, is that Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. We'll come back to that in a moment. The second thing we're told is that in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. In other words, God wasn't very chatty in those days. This is telling us what's about to happen was very unique. It's not something that happened every day or that everyone in the serving in the temple expected to happen. In verse 2, Eli's in bed sleeping while Samuel is lying in the tabernacle, tabernacle where the ark is. We don't know exactly where Eli is, but we know that these two are a distance apart. As we're, Samuel is laying there, we're told God calls to him, and Samuel responds, what is it? But he's not responding to God. He's responding to who he thinks is Eli. He thinks Eli's calling to him, uh, and that Eli needs something from him. So then he runs to Eli and says, here I am. Did you call me? But when Samuel gets to Eli, he has to wake Eli up. Upon being woken up, 
I'm guessing Eli wasn't the most pleasant version of himself. He's in that half awake, half asleep state where you're annoyed just, or you're awake just enough to be annoyed that you're awake. So I don't read what he says in verse 5 as a tender understanding. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. I read it as an annoyed, I didn't call you. Just go back to bed. And that's what Samuel does. Uh, And the same thing happens. This hints to us that neither Samuel or Eli thought that God would be talking to Samuel. This is especially to since in verse 7, we're told that Samuel didn't know the Lord yet. It wasn't even on Samuel's radar that God would be talking to him. But by the third time, when, when clueless Samuel comes back a third time to Eli, Eli starts to figure out, and we're told in verse 8, eight that Eli says, uh, sorry, we're told in verse 8, then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling to the boy. This time, Eli gets it. He tell, so he tells Samuel to go back and lie down. And if it happens again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's exactly what Samuel does. And when God calls to Samuel again, he gives Samuel a vision for Eli. Eli finally gets it right. And I wonder how this story would have changed if Eli hadn't have caught on uh, the third time. You know, right now, the comic books are kind of raining the the TV or like Disney Plus and the and the movie theaters with the Marvel Cinematic Universe with MCU and they just finished a series called Loki in which it talks about a timeline this timeline that's supposed to be followed and it begins to explore the different what ifs uh, if things had gone differently with Loki's story or in the story of other characters And that gets me thinking about Eli. What if when Samuel came back the third time, Eli had said, you're hearing things, kid, or the other other priests are pranking you, just go back to sleep. Would God have continued calling until Samuel caught on? Would God have sent another priest uh, to tell Samuel what's up? Or would Samuel have gone back to bed and continued to ignore the Lord? Samuel, uh, Eli gets it right once. And because he got it right that one time, a boy who didn't know the Lord hears God's voice. As much as we bumble and stumble, as much as we might get it wrong, God wants to use us because he can make those wrongs right and because that one time we get it right maybe the exact moment uh, the exact, excuse me and because that one time we get it right might be the one time that changes things for that one person maybe getting it right is inviting a neighbor onto the deck for a conversation maybe it's a phone call instead of a text 
Maybe it's the decision to get baptized or become a member. As I've talked with different people about their uh, baptism experience, a number of them have said, the reason I decided to get baptized is because of seeing someone else, seeing a friend get baptized. Their friend's baptism was a catalyst for them to make the decision. Uh, A few years ago, I texted a girl named Michelle about being a youth leader, and she couldn't believe my timing. She said, ever since I heard the teens sharing about their mission trip, I've wanted to get involved with youth. I've wanted to step into that discipleship role. We never know the impact that our decision to live intentionally for Jesus will have on others. Getting it right won't come with fireworks and pats on the back. You may get it right and never realize you did. Getting it right is doing it. It's intentionally living our lives in a way that points people to Jesus. But we can only point people to Jesus if we're around them. In chapter 2, when we were being told about everything Eli's sons are doing and how Eli responds... There's a weird break in the story that starts in verse 18 when we're reminded that Samuel was in the tabernacle serving the Lord. Then in verse 1 of chapter 3, I told you we'd come back to it, we're told that Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Both of these verses tell us that Samuel isn't just occasionally running into Eli, that he's spending time with him. Uh, He was around seeing firsthand what was going on with Eli's sons and how Eli responded. Samuel was seeing Eli when he wasn't on. If we're going to disciple others, we have to spend time with them. It's not enough for them to see us for five minutes in the parking lot after church. It's not enough to get them to follow us on Instagram. We have to be around each other. Look at Jesus. He did a three-year intensive discipleship with his, his guys, and they still got it wrong at times. They still made dumb decisions. You know, they, they ate together, traveled together, shared sleeping accommodations, and yet they still made dumb decisions. Peter cut a guy's ear off. John had to make sure everyone knew he was the disciple that Jesus loved. And then there's the whole... Uh, Judas thing they didn't always get it right but they were together and, and the fact that they didn't write points uh, didn't always get it right uh, points us to something else and that's that we can't do it for them those we disciple aren't always going to write uh, do it right or get it right and some may even decide they're done There's no magic formula that will guarantee that those who start the race who finish it, that those who put their hand to the the plow will never look back. In verse 26, it seems as though Samuel is intentionally being contrasted with Eli's sons. After being told about their wicked acts and their eventual fate, we read as a conclusion to the story in verse 26, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. 
while Eli's sons were on the fast track to destruction, Samuel grew in favor with God. I think it's important that we see what's going on here. We have three guys who have the same experience but go in very different directions. It's likely that Eli's sons were much older than Samuel because they were serving as priests in the tabernacle, which was a role that Levites began to serve or began to fulfill when they were in their mid-20s, whereas Samuel was like a junior priest or a priest in training, just helping out around the temple. You know, earlier we talked about Eli being responsible for what he did. And just the same, his sons and Samuel were responsible for what they did with what Samuel taught them. As a youth pastor, it's easy to feel responsible for the decisions of my teens, whether they're 15 or 30. I feel it. Anytime we mentor or disciple someone, there's that temptation to, be, to feel responsible for them, to, feel that, to take ownership of their actions but, or their decisions, but we can't do that. During the time that Tim was my youth pastor, there were several of us in the youth ministry who had similar experiences. We heard the same talks from Tim. We went to similar schools. We had the same friends. We went on the same mission trip or same youth trips. But we didn't all end up following Jesus. Some of us stuck with Jesus. Some of us walked away for a time. Some of us walked away and kept walking. This isn't on Tim, though. Tim did what God asked him to do, to love Jesus and disciple others. Tim couldn't make the decisions for us, and knowing how much he loved us, I also know that there were many times it broke his heart to know about some of the choices we were making. At the same time that there were, his heart was breaking, there were times that some of our decisions made him cry tears of joy. It was because of Tim that some of us made the decision to make our parents' faith our own faith. It was because of Tim that some of us were pointed away from destructive habits and patterns in our life. It was because of Tim that some of us recognized that God was leading us into full-time ministry. That was my story. One year, Tim took a smelly, annoying ninth grader to a youth conference. And it was at the end of that conference that I realized that the, for the first time, I realized for the first time that God was leading me into full-time ministry, something that was never really on my radar. Going, uh, discipleship is a ris is risky business because we cannot guarantee the outcome. When we disciple others, we can't take responsibility for the decisions they make. We can guide, we can advise, we can even correct. We can be there no matter what choices they make. But we have to respect and honor the choices they do make. And we can't beat ourselves up when they do make them. Going back to Andy Stanley, Stanley's treasury, uh, treasure illustration, uh, in a way, Andy actually borrows this analogy from Jesus. In Matthew 25, 14 to 30, we're told about, uh, Jesus tells us a parable about a master who 
calls his servants together, and to one servant he gives five bags of silver, to another he gives two bags, and to the uh, third he gives one bag. The first two go out, and they be set to work investing the money and doing something with it. The third one takes that bag and buries it in the ground. After a long time, uh, the master comes back, and the and the servants have to give account for what they did with the money. So the first, the first two have invested the money and doubled it, and they receive a, a reward for what they've done with the money. The third one comes in and literally gives the master back the same bag of gold or silver. The master becomes irate, and he takes that one bag from the servant and gives it to the one who initially had five and now has ten. And then he, that third servant, he kicks out. And I don't think that the master is angry that the servant, that third servant, didn't double his money or make money off of what he was given. I think that master is angry that he didn't even try to do anything with the money that he didn't even try to do anything with what he was given. The servant was so scared about losing his treasure that he didn't even try. What are you going to do with the treasure that is you? Can I let you in on a secret? You're meant to spend it. Your treasure is meant to be spent. You are meant to be spent on others. To be a follower of Jesus is about being discipled and discipling others. As we are being discipled, we are to be making disciples. My first youth pastor, Tim, got this. Till the day he died, he was spending the treasure that was him. While he laid in his hospital bed, crippled with MS, the doctors, the nurses, his family and friends got to experience the joy of the riches that was, that was the treasure of Tim. When you came in this morning, there should have been a toy coin on your seat. If you didn't get one, connect with me after and I'll get you one. Um, for those watching online, uh, if you want to maybe pick up a chocolate coin at the dollar store, I think they come in like bags or strings so you can take one and keep it and eat the rest. It's kind of a win-win. But take this coin home with you and put it on your dashboard, in your desk at work, in your toolbox on your fridge, on your nightstand, anywhere that you'll see it on a regular basis. And let it serve as two things for you. May it be a reminder that you are a treasure. You are of immeasurable value and worth. And may it be a challenge to disciple others by investing yourselves in them. You're you are a treasure that is meant to be spent.